thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our executive pastor, Pastor Kevin Kelts. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Many of you guys know if you've been coming here for a while now, we went through an eight-week series called Irresistible. And two weeks ago, Pastor Jared, he preached an amazing message, one of the best messages that I've ever heard. In fact, after the service, I went up to him and I said, listen, I know you're my best friend. I know you're my pastor, and sometimes, you know, I may, may have rose-colored glasses, but I'm telling you, man, that was like the best message that I've ever heard. And, and here's the thing, guys. Many of you guys know, and maybe some of you don't, but my family and I, we moved about three years ago from a, a church that I was pastoring and had pioneered a church for, for eight years there. We moved to be a part of establishing this church, and we believe in this house. But there was a season there for eight years that really just every week I was just pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, and never had the opportunity to just be poured into uh, you know, although I was continuing to learn in education, having a relationship with my spiritual father, moving forward, reading books, there's just something about being present in a service with a group of like-minded individuals who are saying, amen, come on, pastor, and being in that environment. I was telling you, I said, Pastor Jared, I'm just so full today of what you were laying down. Just And I told him, I said, since I've been here, I've also grown. I've, I've grown as Pastor Jared preaches, and there's certain things that he sees and insight that the Holy Spirit gives him, perspective that I've never seen before. And I'm like, wow, that was, that was amazing. And, and so he had this really cool idea. It was so awesome to be able to get us to jump into the Word with him. He talked about this idea, and he said, go with me, if you will. And if you haven't heard this sermon, go back and listen to it. It's from two weeks ago. It's the last of the Irresistible series. He said, go with me, just if you will, and, and let's say we could get in a time machine and go back to Rome all the way back to 82 A.D. And so it was cool. He's like, we're going back. We're going back in time. And at that time in Rome, the emperor that was in charge, and you can go back and look this up in, in not a Bible, but in history books, you'll find out that the emperor was this guy named Domitian. Everybody say Domitian. And so uh, really, that was the powerhouse of the world, the Roman Empire at that time. Domitian was the emperor, and he I'm not going to preach the whole sermon again, but go back and listen to it. And he just explained a little bit what was going on. Uh, Emperor Domitian, he had a, a brother named Titus, and he had a father named Vespasian. Now, Titus before him was the emperor, and then before Titus was the emperor, their dad, Vespasian, was the emperor. And before Vespasian was the emperor, everybody knows this guy. His name was Nero. Do y'all remember hearing about, if you took any type of world history, you learned about Emperor Nero. And so what was going on is there in about, let me, let me make sure I have it, 66 AD, Emperor Nero, he decided, you know, we are the biggest powerhouse in the land and there is this uprising, there's this rebellion that's taking place, you know, pretty close to us in Jerusalem. And so he sends his greatest war hero, and it was Domitian's dad, Vespasian. He tells him, he says, come here, and he says, listen, I want you to go take out this rebellion. I want you to go to sack Jerusalem. I want you, what, what, what started, if you go read in your history book, this was the first ever Roman-Jewish war. And it started to take place. He took the, the greatest army in the land and went to sack Jerusalem, okay? So that happens. While this is going on, Nero dies. And so the emperor Nero is dead. They send for Vespasian, and he actually comes back, and he becomes the emperor. Go look at this up in history. You need to know this. He, 
uh, Vespasian becomes the emperor, and he leaves his son Titus now to be the general in charge and to completely do what Nero had sent them to do, finish this thing. And so in September the 8th, 70 AD, and if you're taking notes, just write that down. That's really important to know. September the 8th, 70 AD, our history books will tell us that approximately 1.1 million Jews were murdered, were slaughtered. And I'm talking about this was a slaughter. It was, it was men, it was women, it was children. They held back. There was no mercy. They went in and killed everybody, young and old. It didn't matter. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem and completely and utterly destroyed the Jews' sacred temple. And this is, this is something that Pastor Jared was talking about. And this is something that, guys, a lot of people don't understand. But we as Christians, we need to understand this history. This is something that I want you to think about. I want you to know about it. I want you to go and look this up. And what Pastor Jared did, he says, when we go back in this time machine to 82 AD, and now uh, what's happened is Nero has died. What's happened is Vespasian, their, uh, Domitian's dad, died. Then Titus died, okay? Now, Domitian, he is the emperor. And, and Jared was saying, Pastor Jared was saying, as we walk to this, the Colosseum, we pass through something that uh, Domitian had, had made to commemorate his brother's and his father's victory over the Jews. And it's called the Arch of Titus. And I'll put a picture up. Uh, that's the Arch of Titus. Now, listen, you can still go and visit this today. Okay, it's a historical monument. It's something that you can go and you can look at. I'll put up another picture for you if you kind of want to see where it's located, right next to the Colosseum. It's something he was talking about that you would walk through on your way to, and you know, when we back, went back in time to 82 AD. And, and, and what, what's really interesting is this Arch of Titus that was built by Domitian to honor his, his brother and his father's conquest over the Jews. The next picture, I'll show it to you. There is some artwork that was carved, and if you look closely, you can see on the south panel, it de depicts the triumphant procession of Titus in 71 AD and his men. And it's showing what you can see there is there are men coming back triumphant in victory. They've completely sacked Jerusalem. They've completely torn down the temple. They killed over one million people. It was one of the greatest triumphs that they had ever had. And they're carrying, in the artwork, you can see they actually carved out them bringing back the, the spoils of the war. You can see the, there's a menorah there. The biggest thing that's sticking up kind of looks like a tree. That's the candlestick holder, the seven-branch candlestick holder. You can see they're having, they took the trumpets out of the temple. They even, at the very first part in the front right part of this picture, you can see what looks to be the, even the Ark of the Covenant that they had taken out of the temple after they completely destroyed it. And Pastor Jared was talking about this, and the Spirit of God spoke to me while he was saying that and said, Kevin, it's time to go and talk about Matthew chapter 24. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down. We're going to be in a series for a couple weeks called Matthew 24. And what happened in Matthew chapter 24 is Jesus, it's one of Jesus' greatest, longest, and most specific, um, it, it, was, it was when he prophesied, it was one of his longest prophecies, and he literally prophesied what we can go and read and actually, literally, I just described to you what happened in 70 AD. Jesus prophesied this in Matthew chapter 24. And so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk a little bit more about what happened in 70 AD when 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered. It's important for you to know because the truth is, is that this is history. And this is something that many of us maybe weren't taught when we were growing up in church. Is something that maybe a lot of us are unaware of. You see, everything that we've been teaching here at the exchange for weeks and weeks and weeks has been about the new covenant. Everybody say the new covenant. How many are glad to be living in the new covenant? Right? And you, and you know from the teachings that, that we've been 
preaching here, the sermons that have been coming out, that the new covenant, when it came, it completely did away with the old covenant. It made the old covenant, uh, Paul calls it obsolete. It made it completely obsolete. And so us living in the new covenant, we understand that none of us ever lived in the old covenant, right? None of us. And so all the things that uh, were, were going on with the Old Covenant, everything that's connected to the Old Covenant, none of that applies to us, correct? These are things just a little, a little just to go over again, to catch us all up. Those things don't apply to us. We understand that the Old Covenant was temporary. Everybody say temporary. It was just for a season. It was for a certain group of people that are not us. And now that, that Old Covenant is completely gone. It was a temporary covenant. And because the covenant was temporary, listen to this, God placed himself. Now, please hear me today. The Father and the Son are the same. Although they are a different application to our lives, okay, the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity as well. He's a different application. He's still God. He's a different application to our lives. And many of us, I think, in our atonement theory, get things a little bit twisted. And we think that God the Father and, and God the Son, Jesus, were, were actually completely separate at some point in time. And God the Father somehow was mad at God the Son, and he made him be, you know, take on all the punishment and the penalty. And that's not it at all. God literally made himself into this application, the Son, Jesus. At no point was he mad at himself. Y'all understand that, right? You understand that? He made himself and came to this earth in the form of God, the Son, and when he came here, his name was what? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Everybody say Jesus. And Jesus, he lived on this earth, okay? This is not some storybook, some comic book, some movie that never really happened. Jesus walked. God the Son walked on this earth that we live on right now. He, 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 he lived, he breathed the air that we breathe, okay? He was really here. And then, you know, for three and a half years, he starts to uh, demonstrate his kingdom. Through signs, wonders, and miracles, he was really, he came to a group of people, the people of God, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the, the story that the Hebrew scriptures are, are all about, everything that we learned about in the old covenant, that covenant was for them. God comes to him through his, his son, making himself his son, and he's speaking to them. He's reaching out to them. He's saying, listen, that covenant was temporary, and listen, I want to make now a covenant that's not only going to be for you, but it's going to be for the entire world. It's going to be a new covenant. And he starts teaching and preaching it, and, and the, the prophets of that day, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the high priests of the Jewish people and that Jewish faith at that time, they received him a little bit. They received him as a rabbi. They, received, they, were, they were in awe of what he knew about the Torah, of what he knew about the law and the prophets. They were in awe of the signs, wonders, and miracles that was taken. They thought, man, this guy is connected to Jehovah somehow, but they said he's not the Messiah. They rejected him, okay? And so now Jesus, he's, he's on the scene, and then all of a sudden he dies, through, listen, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he initiates the new covenant, okay? The covenant not just for a certain group of people, but for all people. That will affect everyone, everywhere, demonstrating God's love. The whole thing is about relationship. Everybody say relationship. Now, now please hear what I'm about to say, because this is important. His new covenant has now, it, it, it removed the old covenant. But when this happens at his death, the new covenant starts. I'm going to tell you something for just a second. It might, it might be a little hard for you to understand, but the old covenant is now made invalid, but it's still going. Now, let me, let me just read you what Paul says about this, and we'll put it up on the Sky Bible for you in Hebrews chapter 8. The Apostle Paul, he, he writes to the Hebrews. He's not writing to us. Okay, this was a letter for somebody else that we get to read now and we get to glean from, okay? And he writes this letter and he says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, everybody know the first covenant is the law, right? The old covenant, the law with uh, the covenant with Moses. 
okay, he says, if it was faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, which is the new covenant that Jesus came to establish, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, so quoting God, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Everybody say new covenant. With the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. So it's not the same as the old covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. Y'all remember the story? Moses leading them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant. See, God wanted to establish a covenant with them. The covenant that, that he wanted with them, they rejected. So he He goes along with what they wanted and makes a covenant, not that he wanted, but what they wanted. And then even in that covenant, they still rejected him. They still rejected the relationship is what what he says. And he says, and and, in this, in verse 10, for this covenant I will make, I will make with the house of Israel. And those days said, Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and, and they shall be my people. I want relationship, is what he's saying. None of them shall teach their neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Listen to this. In the new covenant, he says, For all shall know me. Everyone shall know me, he says, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful. To their un- Listen, when, when in this covenant, he's declaring, I will be merciful in their unrighteousness. When they make mistakes, when they stumble, I will be merciful. It wasn't that way in the old covenant. Everybody understand that? Okay. He says, this one's it's new and it's better. That one was temporary. This one's forever. He says, I'll be merciful and in their righteousness. And listen to this, their sins and their lawless deeds, I'm going to forget those things. I'm not going to impute them against them. I'm not going to hold those things against them. And he says this, and this is where I'm trying to get to, verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant, everybody say new covenant, has made the first obsolete. So at the cross, it made the first obsolete. Let me get uh, Caitlin and Kinsey to come up with me. Just, just, you'll come up here for a second. It's made the first obsolete, but then he says this, now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, he says, think about Paul in his day, okay? Now, let's have, Caitlin, you come right over here. I know we didn't, I didn't talk to you about this. I'm sorry, okay? You come right here. Kenzie, you come right here. And I want you guys, y'all represent two different covenants face that way. And, and this is the only way that I know how to, to, to really put this into a good is, illustration. I was thinking about this last night. Um, let's think of trains. You know how a train, you can shut off the engine of a train, but once you do and you, you, you stop all that thrust, it's so heavy, even though you stop it, it still has a little distance to go because of momentum, right? Okay, so Caitlin represents the old covenant, okay? And she's a train. Say, choo-choo. Oh, I know you love that. Okay, she's the old covenant, okay? Now, you're a train as well, okay? And you represent the new covenant, okay? So you're going along, and you're full speed. You're full speed. And God's like, this is a temporary covenant, temporary covenant, temporary covenant. At the cross, all, all of your power, everything is shut off. But because of momentum... You're moving along. You start. The new covenant starts, and you keep going, but you're slowing down. You're going faster, faster, faster. But do you see, at some point, they were moving together. Both of them were going together at the same time. Then one, although it had lost his power, goes for a little bit in momentum, then stops, but the other one keeps on going. Y'all give them a hand, okay? I'm sorry to embarrass y'all this morning. The old continued even though the cross established the new covenant. It continued for a period of time. The old actually, although it was invalid, it was not applicable to anybody. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law didn't believe that a new covenant was there. So they kept going to the temple in Jerusalem And they continued to operate in relationship to God and the sacrifice of the animals, of the blood, that take a lamb. They kept doing it. It was for nothing. 
okay? And y'all saw where the momentum of Caitlin, it stopped at the cross, but people kept doing it, okay? It's still going. The old covenant is still going, but the new covenant has, has actually started. You see, the old actually continued all the way up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And you can still see today, historically, you can go see this Arch of Titus that literally shows us that it, it happened. And now, where these people wanted to still be active in the old covenant, it was taken away from them. Because by law, it had to be at that temple. There's no other way to make a sacrifice to God. It had to be a certain priest that was from a certain Levitical priesthood. And when 70 AD happens and it's completely destroyed, the temple is taken down brick by brick, which we're going to see in just a second that Jesus prophesied specifically in Matthew chapter 24. Now the people that were trying to continue in that covenant, it has now not only been made obsolete, it has completely stopped because it can't go any further. Do y'all, do, does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying there? It, at, at some point in a period of 40 years, from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., these two covenants coexist. They coexist, okay? If you remember the story in 1 Kings about Saul the people, Pastor Jared talked about this in the previous sermon series. The people wanted a king. They chose Saul as their king. It wasn't the king that God wanted. God didn't even want him to have a king, but he says, okay, you can have a king like everybody else. They picked Saul. Then in the first year of Saul's reign, he goes and he offers a sacrifice without the prophet Samuel there. And it's detestable in God's eyes. This stuff doesn't apply to us because it's all old covenant, right? It's all, it's all stuff that's pre-new covenant, okay? So he goes and does that. He, God says he wishes that you never were the king. Now, we can go read in Acts chapter 13. It tells us that Saul reigned for 40 years, even though God didn't want him to be the king anymore in the first year. And also in that first year, God goes, sends the prophet Samuel, and he anoints David as his king. And so we have a period of 40 years where there's two kings. It's kind of like what you see. There's a period of, of 40 years where there's two covenants, right? See, the New Testament and the New Covenant, Jesus establishes at the cross the New Covenant by shedding his blood as the perfect lamb. But the New Covenant is not fully inaugurated until the old company, co covenant is completely removed. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard this statement before? The finished work. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard that. You probably maybe have a Christian friend that said that before. The, I, it's, it's the finished work, brother. It's the finished work. You have probably even heard uh, one of us pastors use it in a sermon. The finished work. It's a, it's a theology that people talk about, that people believe in. But here's, here's what I want to say about the finished work. Please hear me. And, 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 and hold on to what I say, and then let me explain it. The finished work was not finished at the cross. Now, I know you're like, whoa, 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 just a second, Pastor. But let me say that again. The finished work was not finished at the cross. Let me, let me take you to a certain scripture. It's in John chapter 17, verse 4, quoting Jesus. Before the cross, Jesus said this, God speaking to the Father. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. So here we have Jesus before the cross saying, it is finished. I did it. I finished the work that you sent me to do. Then he should have just ascended right there, and, and we should have never had the cross, right? But is that what happened? No. 
No, he didn't, it wasn't finished before the cross because we know that Jesus went to the cross. His work wasn't finished just because he said it was finished. It, it wasn't a prophetic word. It was, it, was a, it, it was a past tense statement. He says it was finished. Now, what does that mean? It reveals to us that Jesus had different tasks to finish in the finished work. There were different stages before the finished work was completely done. No one believes that it was all accomplished before the cross. Amen? Because we believe that he went to the cross, and then when he got on the cross, he said what? It is finished. And that's why we believe, a lot of us believe, well, that's it. That's the finished work is at the cross because he said it. But listen, I want to remind you that Jesus didn't speak English. Y'all understand that? So I know you, you've maybe seen a movie, and it was a British accent, Jesus, and he said, it is finished in a British accent. I don't know how to do that. And you're like, wow, Jesus speaks English. He actually didn't speak English, okay? So what did Jesus literally say on the cross? He said this word, tetelestai. Everybody say tetelestai. It's a phrase that we have translated in our English as it is finished. But listen, there's two meanings. You always have to remember this. When you're reading the Bible, you have to have audience relevance. So you have to ask yourself in historical contextual hermeneutics, we've been teaching this all year, ask the writer that wrote this, what did it mean to the writer in that time, in his generation, and what did it mean who he wrote it to? in that time, in that generation. So, on the cross, Jesus says, tetelestai, he says that. We know that that means, to us, it means it is finished, but in their generation, when the people were sitting there hearing that, there was two forms that they would have heard that same phrase in their generation. The first thing that it meant was this. Back then, just like us, people would take out a loan and go buy some type of property. Today, for us, a lot of us, we take out a loan. We don't have the money to buy a home, so we go get a loan, right? And we start having a mortgage, and we pay a mortgage every month, right? You pay this 30 years, I'm going to be paying this, right? Let's say you get to the 30th year. You get to the final payment, and you walk in there, and you write the final check, and you give that check to the person that holds the mortgage, in their day, what they would do is they would take a stamp and they would stamp it to telestai. What that meant is what was paid, what was owed, is now paid. What was owed is now paid. And Jesus saying, using that same statement that people understood in that day and in that time, was saying to the people in that day and in that time, what was owed to the old covenant has been completely paid for. Tetelestai. It is finished. You owe nothing to the old covenant. Behold, now the new covenant. That's good. That's something you can say amen right there. The second understanding of this word because we hear and we just think the finished work. Well, everything was finished right there. It wasn't completely finished. But the second thing it would have meant to somebody in that generation was this. You can go study this out. Back then, they would also use that word to telestai in warfare. So think about a long time ago, uh, like Game of Thrones type of days, like 300 type of days, Roman Empire, you would have two, and, and really you can even think about even in the, the Hebrew scriptures, like back in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, they would have these wars where these two uh, armies would meet on their feet. You know, they didn't have tanks and guns back then. You had to have close quarter combat with, you know, knives and swords and, and spears, and, and that's how they fought. Well, they would usually meet in a valley, and they would fight. On one side of the valley, at a great vantage point, would be this army's general on the other side of the valley at a great vantage point would be the other general. And this general was watching what was happening, strategically sending messages. Now do this. Now we're going to flank them this way. We're going to do this. And they could see everything that was going on. At one point in the war, what would happen is one of the generals would notice, we have won this war. It is over. We have beat the enemy. And so they would shout with a loud voice, Tetelestai. 
It is finished telling the army they don't need to fight anymore. It's completely over. So get the picture with me, if you will. When Jesus says to Stelestai, he's not only saying, it is finished. I've paid full price. You owe nothing to the old covenant anymore. He is also saying that the enemy has been completely defeated. Come on, somebody. That's good news. So when they hear it is finished, they don't go, they don't hear that Jesus is going, well, I finished my work. There's nothing left to do. That's not what they heard. That's what we were taught. That's not what they heard. They heard those two things, okay? So the finished work, when we're talking about the finished work, listen, the finished work embodies so much more. It's a bigger picture because, listen, the finished work includes his death. Thank you, God, for the cross. Amen. It also includes his resurrection, Okay, it includes, he not only, he didn't stop right there. Come on, somebody, he ascended. It's his ascension. It's also, how many know, on the day of Pentecost, so 40 days later, he ascends. 10 days after he ascends, he sends his Holy Spirit. Aren't we thankful for that? That's also part of the finished work. And then finally, the final part of the finished work was the destruction of the temple system to completely remove the old covenant It can't move any for. It's completely gone and established that the new one can exist. That is the finished work. So, what's so amazing is when we when we study this and and we we look at this, we understand what's going on. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus prophesies. Everything that's going to happen in their future. Remember, it it was not written to you. He wasn't speaking to us. He was speaking to a certain group of people in a certain time, right? And he he, he gets every detail down. It's, it's, uh, It's amazing. So before we get to Matthew 24, we need to have some context. Everybody say context. Context is great. Let's, let's look at the conversations that he's having leading up to Matthew 24 to set it up. So in Matthew 21, write that down, read it later. We're going to read it together right now, and I'm going to put it up on the Sky Bible for you. But in Matthew 21, there's a parable, and Jesus is talking to, he's coming to these people again. He's not coming to the Gentiles right now. He's coming to his people. He's coming to the Jews that have rejected him, that see him as a rabbi but not God. They see him as a good teacher, but not the Messiah. And he's trying to show them the old covenant is coming to an end. We're, I'm establishing a new covenant. And he comes to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. He comes to the priests. This is the context. He, that's who he's speaking to, okay? And in verse, uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 33, he tells them a story. And in verse 33, he says this. Follow with me on the, the screen. Listen to another parable. Jesus says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, and he dug in a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So this guy, he had this great, this great place that was his, and then he, he, he left it and left it in care of somebody else, okay? And then he says, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. So there's these people that are supposed to be taking care of what's his, and now he sends, sends some people to, to see, can, what's the harvest? What's that looking at? And in verse 35, the tenants seized the servants that were sent. They beat one. They killed another. They stoned the third. Verse 36, then, this is what Jesus said. Then, okay, this guy sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Verse 37, last of all, he sent his son to them. Let me say that again. He sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. That's what the father said. Verse 38, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. Take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Are you getting the picture of what Jesus is trying to say to these people? Okay, the the landowner is who? God. Because he later sends his son, right? And and he's coming to this group of people, his people. And in verse 34, 35, 36, the servants represent the prophets. 
that God sent year after year, generation after generation with the word for them. I want you. I want you. Let's have a relationship. And what did they do? They rejected them. They killed him, and he says, okay, well, if they won't receive these messengers of mine, surely, I'm so proud of my son, surely they'll receive my son. And he says, it says, God sent the son, and the same thing happened. So verse 40, check it out. Look what verse 40 says. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus asked them, what will he do to these, these tenants, these people? Now, the crowd were listening to the parable. The people that he asked the question to, they respond in verse 41. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They're thinking, if somebody did that to my kid, he, this father will bring those wretched, those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. This is amazing to me. These people declared their own destruction in response to the story. What's the father going to do when he comes to get an account for killing his own son? They said, they'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. They, that's what they cry out. Then we get down to verse 45. I'll put it up on the Sky Bible for you. Verse 45 says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees, that's who he was speaking to, heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They didn't go, we don't understand. We don't know what's going on here. Explain this to us. They knew, oh, this guy, he says that he is God. He is the son. And he's talking about us. Did you catch this? The people who Jesus was just talking to figured out. They knew he's talking about us. At no point did they go, you know, I have an idea. Uh, I think that he's referring to People living in Houston, Texas, living in 2019. I think that's what it is. No, it's very plain in the scripture. They knew that Jesus was not talking about us. He was talking about them. He continues in chapter 22, and he tells He goes, okay, let me tell, let me tell you guys another story. In verse 1 of chapter 22, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Then he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. So the servants were sent, come, have relationship, come, please, have relationship. The servants to those who had been invited to the banquet tell them to come, they refused to come. Verse 4, then he sent them more servants. He's like, man, I'm not mad at you. I'm sending more, more, more prophets. Tell those who have been invited, I have prepared a dinner. My oxen, my fattened calf have been butchered, which this, this all means stuff to those people who are hearing it. It's a little different for us, but the verbiage is specific for a reason. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. They, the rest seized his servants, mistreated those servants, and killed those servants. The king was enraged. He sent an army to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Wow, is right. Guys, can I tell you, these are not just parables. They're not just stories. Jesus was telling these people what was coming. He was telling them, under this old covenant, not that the Father wanted to have, but what you chose, there is coming a judgment, not on the world, not on the Gentiles, don't even have no idea about all of this stuff that's been going on for 1,500 years. They have no clue about this. He's saying, I've come to you, you've rejected me, and under this old covenant, I'm telling you, there's something that's about to happen. As we go in Matthew 24, we're going to see that Jesus still had mercy on them, and he says, when these things start to happen, I don't want any of you to perish, so I want you to flee. I want you to get out of, out of my mercy. I don't want you to have any part of this destruction that's coming. Isn't that awesome about God's love? Amen. We're going we're gonna to see that in, in, in probably next week. But these are not just parables. Jesus is actually talking about some real things that actually happened. They've already happened. He's telling them that under this old covenant, there's going to be a coming judgment. He would then continue in, in chapter 23. So 
I know we see chapter 21, chapter 23, 22, chapter 23, and we, we think all this time has passed, but there's this conversation that Jesus is still carrying on with the same people, okay? And he goes to the, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he starts saying this. Go read chapter 23. It is heavy, man. He's like, woe to you, woe to everybody. I'm telling you, he says, woe to the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, you blind guys. I mean, he's not pulling any punches, man. You whitewashed tombs. You remember him saying that? He didn't say it to you. He didn't say it to me. He said it to a certain group of people at a certain time that were going through a certain thing. Jesus goes off on them. And the disciples are watching this like, man, we have never seen this side of Jesus. He's usually going to people that are Gentiles, spitting in their eyes, making them see. He's going to people he went to a Jew one day, raised him from the dead. This is what Jesus is usually doing. And then he says, listen, under the old covenant, there's a judgment that's coming. And, and, and they're like, wow, this is crazy. Jesus is freaking out. But listen, Jesus wasn't freaking out. He was freaking in. He knew what was going on. He knew what he was doing. He's declaring, woe to you. You've missed it. You guys are going to go down. You are wretches going to a wretched end. He's going to send armies, and the city's going to be burned to the ground. Woe to you. Woe to you. You get to the end of chapter 23, and I'll put it up on the Sky Bible for you, and the same story is continuing. And in chapter 23, verse 33, he says this, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Everybody say hell. Go back and study that word right there. Hell is not translated as what you and I would think a place that some people go after we die, a place of eternal conscious torment. Go and, go and look this up. And, and listen, you can use the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance if you would like to. I can show you how to use this thing to prove what I'm saying to you. Or you could just go to BibleHub.com. It's really simple. Put in the verse that you want to see. Then when the verse comes up, there's a tab. You know what? I'll, I'll do this next week. I'll show you guys how to do this. I'll put it up. I'll do screenshots and show you. Just click the tab that says Greek or Inelary, uh, uh Lexicon. You click on that, and it shows you the original Greek word that was used there. The original Greek word is Gehenna. So he says, how will you escape being condemned to Gehenna, Gehenna was a place that they all knew. It was just right outside of Jerusalem. It was the valley of Henna. It was a place where they would take people, and that day when they died, mostly the lepers, people that had diseases, they would take them out. They were already outside the city. They would take them, and they would burn them there. It was a trashy. They would take their trash and put it. And he was saying, listen, man, this thing, it's going to get bad. How, how can you uh, uh, escape being condemned? To Gehenna, verse 34, he says this, Therefore I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Now stop for a second. Everybody say pause. Jesus is prophesying right here about after he dies, after he's raised from the dead, and after he ascends, he says, even then, I'm going to send you prophets. I'm going to send sages and teachers. Some of them were named James. And Paul, these are who Jesus was talking about. And he says, and you will kill them. You will crucify them. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Guys, that happened. Okay, verse 35, and so upon you will come the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, Jesus, when is this going to happen? Verse 36, write it down. Matthew 23, verse 36, Jesus says, all of this will come in this generation. Pause. Time, time's out. Time's, time's out. Because I grew up hearing this scripture. I grew up hearing preachers telling me that all of the things that I just read to you in chapter 22, verse 1, all the way through 7, that that was in my future. These are things that I have in my future. And Jesus puts a time stamp on it. 
He says, I'm prophesying these things that will happen. And I just showed you in history, there is the Arch of Titus that you can still go see. You can look this up in history books. This literally happened. 1.1 million Jews died and were slaughtered. Jesus is saying, guys, this is going to happen, and it will happen in this generation. What's a generation? Generations in 40 years. From the time that he said this in 30 AD to September 70 AD, it happened just like he said in the time and the manner that he said it. Isn't that amazing? It's like, why did he say from Abel to Zechariah? Well, the people in that day, listen, they didn't have our Old Testament that we have now. They had their own Hebrew scripture, and in that time, it was the Septuagint. The Septuagint ended with Zechariah, not Malachi. And so he's saying from the beginning, from Genesis all the way to Zechariah, from Abel to Zechariah, all the blood that was shed, every time I tried to come to you under that old covenant, every time you killed every, every person that I sent to you, every messenger that I sent, he says, this is going to happen. And then the ultimate, I send you the ultimate messenger, which is me. I send my son to you, and you don't receive him. You murder him. This system has to go. It's not producing any life. It has to be completely torn down. It has to be completely destroyed. And God in his mercy didn't do it the day that Jesus dies. He didn't do it the day that he was buried. He didn't do it the day he resurrected He gave these people that for generation after generation after generation had been taught an old covenant. He gave them 40 years to transition to where they just could not live that system anymore. You say, well, no, there's Jews today. The Jewish faith is not the same as it was in that day. It's a rabbinical faith. It's been completely changed. It's not the same as it was back in the day. That, That thing is completely gone. So listen, at this point, the disciples have heard Jesus say in chapter 21, chapter 22, give parables. Then chapter 23, he tells them impending judgment is coming. Then he ends chapter 23 by telling them all this is going to come on one generation. And they're like, whoa, this is heavy, man. This is crazy. I'm trying to set the scene for you so we can finally get to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is walking out of the temple. He His disciples are right there. So think about it. Context. Context. Everybody say context. He has just had those conversations with the high priests and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. He just had that conversation. He had it where? In the temple. He's walking out of the temple. And this is where we start in chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the what? The temple. He left the what? The temple. And he was walking away when his disciples came to him. And they call his attentions to its buildings. So there wasn't just one, there was a main building, the temple, but there was lots of other buildings. And they're like, hey, man, you just, they're thinking, dude, he just went off on these guys. We've never seen that side of him. Man, this is crazy. And then, and then they're like, hey, hey, Jesus, look at, the, look at the temple. They call his attention to the temple. And then he says, they, verse 2 says this. He says, Do you see all these things? So now he points to the temple. He points to all the buildings that they just called his his attention to. And he says this, Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Wow. It happened in 70 AD, just like he said. He's just gone off on these bad guys. Even these beautiful temples are going to be destroyed. Not one left on another. Verse 3, he's, and Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? Well, he already told them when it was going to happen because he had told them it will happen in this generation, right? But he says, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Pause, time out, time out, time out, time out. Okay, I got to land this plane. When I was a kid, I can't tell you how many evangelists came to my church and would open up the Bible 
and just turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. No context at all. Would not read what was before it and not read what was behind it. And they would say, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24, verse 3. And Jesus, bless God, was on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples, Lord, they came to him privately and they said, tell us. Tell us when it's going to happen. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? And they would say, brother, I'm telling you, it's going to happen. The end of the world is near. There's signs. They, they asked Jesus for the signs of what was going to be the end of the world. And then all of a sudden, they would start going and preach the rest of Matthew chapter 24, talking about you need to be looking. You need to be looking for these signs because this is going to happen in our future. This is what Jesus was saying. They asked him, what's going to be the end of the world? What's going to be the end of the world? Now, if you read this in context... That doesn't make any sense at all. All of a sudden, Jesus says all this stuff, and they come to him privately and say, when's the end of the world going to happen? When, when's this going to end? I mean, when you read this, God doesn't make any sense at all because they don't even know that Jesus is going to die. These guys don't understand the death and the resurrection yet. They're not asking, when will you come back after you die in your resurrection? Because they don't know that he's going anywhere. So they weren't asking about his second coming. It makes no sense. Okay, all of a sudden, after all that Jesus just said about destruction is coming to this generation, whoa, you brutal vipers, look at these buildings. They're all going to come down. It makes no sense that they would come to Jesus privately and say, tell us about the end of the world. You know, like the one where you're going to come back even though that we don't know that you're going anywhere. That doesn't make any sense. And yet some of us grew up being taught that they were asking about an event that would happen sometime in our future and it would be the end of the world. Let me share something with you that you probably don't know. And I might step on somebody's toes just for a second, but I'm, I'm not doing this meanly. I, I grew up, certain churches that we went to, they only believed in the King James Bible. It's the King James or nothing. It's the original King's English, and that's the perfect translation. Well, can I tell you something? I read that scripture a while ago in the NIV, and the NIV got it right. The King James Version actually mistranslated that scripture. Because when you read it in the King James Version, it says the end, when was going to be the end of the world? Everybody say world. The, the word for world, the Greek word for world is cosmos. Everybody say cosmos. I'll, sh I'll show you guys how to do this next week. We'll take some screen pictures. It's very easy to do. Go to Bible Hub, click on the scripture that you want, then click on the Greek, and it will show you the Greek, the original Greek word. It will show you how to say it and what it means. If you go and do that, it will show you the Greek word right there is not cosmos. I'll put it up on the, the screen for you. It's aeonos. And what does aeonos mean? It means a space of time and age. So when it, it's mistranslated in the King James Version, when, it's, when they asked him, when's going to be the end of the world? That's not what they said. They said the end of an age, end of an age. But what's, what's the age? The age that he's talking about, that they're asking about, is it, in context, it makes perfect sense that what was coming to the end, what was about to happen at 70 AD by the destruction of the temple, the end of the age, the end of the age of Moses. The end of the old covenant age, that was what was about to happen. They're asking, what's going to happen? What's going to be the sign, the end of the age? And he says, I'll tell you the sign that that age is ending, that the covenant that God made with your people through Moses, when that is ending, is when you see these walls that I just pointed out, they come tumbling down to the ground. That's going to be a sign that the old covenant is completely gone that the age is completely over. And that makes sense in context. Amen, Pastor. We'll go next week and we'll continue, we'll continue in, in reading and in studying about this because Jesus answers their questions. And he says, these are going to be things that you're going to see at the end of the age. And we're going to talk about those last week. And I'm going to show you how each one of them actually happened 
and came true. Why is this important, Pastor? Why, why is this so important for us to understand this? Because this, a wrong belief system affects the way that you live. And when, Pastor, when you started talking about what happened in the Arch of Titus, the Spirit of God spoke to me and said, it's time to talk about Matthew 24. Because for generations, there has been a wrong belief system. And it, caused, it has caused people that believe in God to live in fear, to live in confusion, to live in suspicion. Because if all this stuff didn't already happen and somehow it's those last days are in our future, then we need to be looking for the next Antichrist and we need to be finding out we can't trust the next president. And I'm telling you right now, we start to make decisions like this. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I can remember the books that came out, 88 Reasons That He's Coming Back in 88. And then rewriting the book again, he's coming in 89. Rewriting the book again, same author, he's coming in 90. I'm going to show you next week. It says, these are the, the, the growth pains. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be, he, he said that um, there's going to be famine. There's going to be, he says all these things that are going to happen. And I can remember sitting in the pew and after, I mean, I remember that week, if we saw any type of rumor of war on TV, I knew the preacher was going to get up there, pick up his Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 24 and start declaring, these are the last days. I was like, you said that in 88 and in 89. And you said that in 90. And you said that in 91. And then you said it again in 95. And then you said, this person is the Antichrist, and that person's the Antichrist, and now Oprah's the Antichrist. And I'm like, man, I like Oprah. But because it was in our future some way, we were afraid. I'm telling you, my grandmother, she's the one that gave me this. Her name's right there, June Kelts. She lived in fear her whole life. She'd call me. Oh, she'd call me man. Man, on the phone. It's the last days. I'm so afraid of about what's about to happen. It's just what Jesus said is going to happen in Matthew 24. And I go, Nana, that already happened. Those days aren't in our future. Those last days that they're talking about are the past days. And she'd say, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know if I see it that way. And she lived, and, and you know what? That generation stored up no generational wealth. Because he was always coming in their day. Any day, any day he's coming. We don't know when it's going to be, but I believe we live in the last days and he's coming back. Why store up generational wealth for the generation that comes after us, my kids, and then for my grandkids, my, my, my kids' kids, my grandkids? Why do that if all of this is going to hell in a handbasket and we're getting the first ticket out of here when it starts happening? Why take care of the earth? So what it caused people to do is spend everything that they had, go get debt, get a ton of debt, buy this and that. It doesn't matter because we're not going to have to be here to pay for it. And my generation is left picking up the pieces of it. Talking about I'm trying to make my own way to start generational wealth in my generation that I can pass on to the next generation and the next generation. Guys, it's important that we get this stuff right because it affects how we live. It affects how we view the Father. So, listen, I hope you go and you listen to this next, uh, this next coming week. Get, get the uh, podcast, go and watch it on Facebook again. I know there's some things that I said that you're like, man, I just need to process that. I need to think about that. 
Let me pray. Father, I just thank you so much. I thank you so much that we live in a day and a time that, that there has never been before. It's a time of information. It's a time where we have access like we never have before. And, 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 and Father, I just pray this morning that you, what would continue to happen is that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That our mind would be completely transformed day by day. That our, our, our mind, our will, and emotions would just continue to be transformed to a place, Lord God, that we know that we are here for a reason. We are called by you to do specific things for you, to establish your kingdom here, now. You're not looking to suck us up off this world and judge it. You sent us to this world to love this world, to take care of this world. And we won't be like the, the, the generation that came before us and the generation, the age that I'm talking about is the old covenant age. We will not be like them. We receive your word. We receive your son. And we establish your kingdom. And we declare that this morning in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Amen. Come on.